It's really great to be back and to feel good uh, with you, the Journey Church family. I'm sorry I was ill last weekend, uh, though I am very grateful to my friend Derry for stepping in and up. Uh, uh, like he's just our he's our audible guy, you know. On Thursday afternoon, I can find him and go, "Hey, you, you're gonna have to do this," because I was in no shape. It was like. It was like five days of 102, 104 degree fever. I haven't been that sick in a long time, uh, but I'm healed. I've been healed. So I'm all better. Thanks for your prayers and your thoughts. Uh, Just in case you didn't notice, my Niners did not make the Super Bowl. Uh, They didn't even make the playoffs, as a matter of fact, but uh, I'm sticking with them. I ain't giving up on the Niners. I'm in and on with those guys. And... uh, do you care what I think about today's game? My prediction? It's the Steelers. And I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of the Steelers or, you know, I don't hate the Cardinals. It's just, it's the Steelers versus the Cardinals, right? I mean, you're just, it's the Steelers. And uh, it's going to be by a couple of touchdowns, right? So now that I've alienated about 50% of you, yeah. Steelers by a couple of touchdowns. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Today we're wrapping up our reading and our discussion, this conversation around this book called The Shack in a series that we call Journey at the Shack. And if you've read this week's section, you'll notice there's a whole lot of resolution to the whole thing, the whole thread of conversation that Mac has been having with the Trinity. And there's a lot of things that land in this last chunk of the book. Uh, And I want you to know that if you haven't finished the book yet, I'll be able to finish this message in the series without uh, ruining the end for you, okay? So that's my commitment to you. And so let's just dive right in. Page 195 and 196. Uh, Here is a conversation between Sorayu, who represents the Holy Spirit, and Mac, who is the main character of the book, you might say. And here's what Sorayu says. I am always with you. Right? The Holy Spirit speaking. I am always with you. Sometimes I want you to be aware in a special way, more intentional. Mac nodded that he understood and turned the canoe. They were out in a canoe at the time toward the distant shore and the shack. He now distinctly felt her presence in the tingle down his spine. They both smiled simultaneously. Will I always be able to see you or hear you like I do now, even if I'm back home? Sarayu smiled. Mackenzie, you can always talk to me and I will always be with you whether you sense my presence or not. I know that now, Max said, but how will I hear you? Sarayu replied, you will learn to hear my thoughts in yours, Mackenzie. She reassured him. Will it be clear? What if I confuse you with another voice? What if I make mistakes? Sarayu laughed, the sound like tumbling water only set to music. Of course you will make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, but you will begin to better recognize my voice as we continue to grow our relationship. And if you were going to, let's say, proof text that little chunk of the shack, if you were going to go looking for a biblical text that would support what Young is writing about there, one of the places that we might go would be John chapter 16, verses 5 to 7. These are the words of Jesus Christ, and if you're familiar with John chapter 16, you know that Jesus is about to check out. He's about to leave. He's about to go to the cross to pay the penalty of the sin of all of humanity, and he's going to be out of here. He's gone. The disciples, they're jonesing about that. They're like, you can't leave us. What are we going to do? And Jesus is speaking into uh, their discouragement and their pain and their difficulty with this concept of Jesus leaving. And here's what he says. 
but now I am going away to the one who sent me, speaking of God who sent Jesus. And not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, that's another name that the text uses for the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. I will send the Holy Spirit to you, Jesus promises. And if you follow Jesus for very long at all, if you're familiar with Christianity very much whatsoever, you know that Christians believe that the Holy Spirit abides with us with people who follow Jesus, with people who have yielded their lives themselves to him, we have the Holy Spirit present with us around the clock. And it's my belief that the Holy Spirit is often speaking to us. The Bible supports this in a whole lot of places. And it's also my belief that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us a whole lot more than we probably recognize and than we probably realize. There's a lot of stuff going on. We're busy, we're distracted, and we're not always tuned into the voice of God via his Holy Spirit. But see, it's only, we only learn to hear the voice of God via his Holy Spirit by this trial and error method, right? There's not a quick how-to book on how to hear the voice of God. It's only by experience, it's only by trial and error that we'll learn to discern the voice of God, the nudges of God, the promptings of God in our lives. And that reality, that trial and error thing, it bugged Mac. He didn't want to get it wrong. He didn't want to screw it up. So much so that he's, he's like to Sarai, will it be clear? What if I confuse you with another voice? What if I make mistakes? And we're gonna, as we're learning to discern and hear the voice of God via his Holy Spirit. Whenever missionaries go into a foreign land, the very first thing they do, if they don't already speak the native language, is they enroll in what they call a language school. In language school, those missionaries rigorously study the language of this new land that they've set down in. But I want you to know that it's usually not the most academically minded or academically skilled missionaries who learn these new languages first or even best. The academically minded missionary most often will bury himself or herself in the study of grammar books, learning verb tenses, so on, learning the vocabulary impeccably. And they will be so cautious to make sure that they've mastered the grammar perfectly so that they will not ever make a mistake when they step out onto the street and begin to speak in this new tongue. They want to be sure that they've got it dialed in. But it's usually the missionaries who are much less inclined toward academics and grammar books who are the ones who learn the language first and who learn it the best. It's the missionaries who volunteer just to run to the market to acquire stuff that they need who learn the language the best. It's the missionaries who volunteer to run all of the errands so that they're interacting with people forced to speak this new language who are the fastest learners. Well, why, you might ask? Well, it's because they're making all of their mistakes in front of native speakers as they try to learn this new language. And they get like right now feedback to how it's going, don't they? 
I speak a little bit of Spanish. I took about five years in high school and college, and so I'm able to speak some. We don't get much practice speaking Spanish here in Montana, as you are well aware. So whenever I travel to a Latin American country, I, I look forward to it, and I just start speaking. I just start talking, but I say just about everything with a question mark on the end because I'm pretty sure that I'm saying it wrong, and most of the time I am, and whoever I'm speaking to tells me as much. No, don't say that. You do not want to say that. Oh, good. Let's not do that, right? Well, this trial and error deal, it's the exact same thing as we learn to hear the voice of God via his Holy Spirit. Because see, it's only when we're willing, and I mean only when we're willing to try and fail, that we will ever become proficient at understanding which voice and which impressions and which nudges come from God and which ones are to be chalked up to last night's bad pizza, right? And in all honesty, you could study the Bible all day long, every single day, and you still will not master the hearing of God's voice via his Holy Spirit. While lots and lots of us are entirely tempted to throw ourselves into book learning on the subject, the real, true learners are those who are willing to throw themselves into simply living out of obedience to the Holy Spirit's voice and promptings. When we receive a prompting from what we consider to be God, just to do it, just to go, just to speak the words, just to follow the nudge. Learning to hear the voice of God will not ever come through the sequestered safety of reading some book or even the book, but only through trial and error experiences. That video, there's some highlights of uh, our trip to Ethiopia in November. Four of us went, two of us from here and two from Harvest. And the purpose of our trip was to sort of kick the tires on some ministries in Ethiopia to figure out how we're going to become the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground in Ethiopia, how we are going to pour in over there to relieve human suffering, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Our first few days, we spent in and around the capital city of Addis Ababa. We were at orphanages. We were at a government-run long-term care facility for the mentally and physically impaired. We were at an enormous 2,100-student K-8 grade school. And after this few-day stint in Addis, our agenda took us five hours south to a community called Awasa. It was a fantastic drive, unbelievable beauty, uh, though I don't want that driver again. That's all I'm going to say about that. It was uh, frightening to say at the least. We checked into this hilarious Italian hotel down there, and our hosts came to the hotel and picked us up. And they were going to take us to a couple of orphanages in and around Awasa. The very first one we went to that afternoon was called CCCE Awasa. I have no idea what all the C's stand for. There's probably a Christ and a Christian something or other in there. And it was a great orphanage, but just like, it was just like a lot of the other ones we had already seen. Lots of precious, precious kids running around. Uh, There was an Ethiopian coffee ceremony uh, that was hosted by the orphanage staff and the regional overseers of this group of orphanages. We were treated to several of these Ethiopian coffee ceremonies every day. It was like at every single stop, they would sort of roll out this deal and they roast the coffee beans, right? It's like a 45-minute deal. They roast the coffee beans right in front of you and uh, it's uh, their way of giving a gift to their guests, and we received lots of those gifts while we were there. And this orphanage was just like a lot of the other ones that we had already seen. Lots of kids running around and so on. But there were these two kids, Fabio and Madonna, 
who just a few minutes after I met them, I was entirely gripped by these two kids, Fabio and Madonna. And it wasn't very many minutes after meeting them that I thought I heard the Lord whispering into my soul, these kids are going to be a part of your family. And at first I heard that and was like, um, whatever, right? (laughs) I I literally kind of blew it off. I thought, it it must be that last round of coffee from the Ethiopian coffee ceremony. This stuff, by the way, is the strongest coffee you have ever seen or tasted. It is as black as road tar, about the same consistency as road tar. It's fantastic coffee, just stout. You, You can't drink very much of this stuff. It will mess you up. Really, I found out. And we were there at that orphanage for several hours, and in those several hours, I could not shake off the whisper of God's Holy Spirit into my soul. These kids are going to be a part of your family. We left the orphanage, and we returned to our hotel, sort of cleaned up, and then our host came, including the orphanage director, and we went to dinner. And over dinner, I engaged him in conversation through very broken English because I do not speak Amharic. It's a very difficult language, by the way. And I asked him what Fabio and Madonna's story was. He told me how they had come to be at the orphanage, how they had already been referred to a family in the United States. They had been accepted by that family in the United States, and they were just waiting for that family to gather their money and finish their paperwork, and then they would be going home very shortly. And he said that, and I almost sat back in my chair and said, Ha! See, I knew I missed it. I knew it was just the coffee, right? So much for hearing the voice of God's Holy Spirit. And about the time I was sort of processing all that, the orphanage director sort of put his finger across the table and said, but, he said, if you think, because I had told him the nudge that I sensed from the Lord, he said, if you even are remotely serious about this nudge from the Lord, would you send an email to this lady named Emily in the United States and would you tell her that you've met these kids and that you'd gladly occupy what they call the backup position just in case anything goes sideways with the family who's working to adopt them. Man, you know, it was a very interesting thought, right? After dinner, we went back to our hilarious hotel, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to call Dana and report to her what I think I heard the Lord say, and so I dialed up the satellite phone, and I just sort of started the conversation. Honey, I think I've met the kids that we're supposed to adopt. Let's kind of start it. Now, this wasn't like a complete shock to Dana. We've both sensed for some time that God would call us to adopt kids. We didn't know what the time frame was, what that might look like, the whens and hows and all. We didn't know how it would unfold. We just knew that it was part of what we considered God's call on our life. And when I threw that out, honey, I think I've met the kids that we're supposed to adopt, I thought that the satellite phone call had been dropped because there was nothing on the other end of the line. So I'm about to remove it from my ear and like redial the whole thing, you know? And I was like, well, I'll try. Hello? Dana said, oh, I'm here. Oh, I'm here. Oh, I said, oh, good. She said, I just don't quite know what to say. And so I just was like, oh, okay. I just went on to tell her. Fabio's 13 and Madonna's nine. Told her the story of how they had come to be at the orphanage and how the Lord had whispered in to my soul, these kids are going to be a part of your family. And Dana was not at all convinced. 
Like, not at all convinced. I thought we would be adopting younger kids, she said. Fabio is 13. He's a teenager. What do we know about raising a teenager? Why don't you just tell me more when you get home? All right, I said, I will. And we finished our stint a couple of days in Owasso. We headed back to Addis. We didn't have any email in Owasso, but we did back at our hotel in Addis. And the first thing I did when I got back to the hotel was I sent an email off to this woman named Emily in the United States telling her that we would very gladly occupy the backup position if anything went haywire with the family who was working to bring Fabio and Madonna home. You know, I'm just trying to be the strong spiritual leader of my home, right? Just (laughs) getting it done, right? And it was just a few minutes after I sent my email off that I received one back from her telling me like, don't hold your breath, Brian. That's nice. I'm glad you've met these kids, but don't expect anything to go sideways with this family. It's like they're as good as gold and nothing should change. But she said, Brian, there are other kids for you to adopt. Would you consider adopting some of them? I just sat on that email and I couldn't shake off this Holy Spirit whisper into my soul, these kids are going to be a part of your family. And I got back from Africa, and you know how life goes, right? You're busy, and there's a lot going on. You're occupied and distracted. But the Holy Spirit's whisper just hung with me, just stuck. I couldn't shake it off. And occasionally in the course of the next few weeks after returning home, Dana would ask me, oh, it was quite a piercing question. What do you think happened with you supposedly hearing from the Lord about this Fabio and Madonna? Like, what, uh, did you hear him wrong? She asked. It's a great question. It's a really great question. And, and I, all I could do is shrug my shoulders and say, well, maybe, maybe. But let, honey, let's just wait and see what happens. And she's like, well, all right, we'll just wait and see. You never know what could happen. And it was about a month that passed by. And it was uh, Monday, December 8th, to be precise. And I was out in our living room doing some reading for school, and I heard Dana shriek from the other end of the house, like down the spare bedroom where the computer is, and and she shrieks out, Honey, come here! And Dana is a very sweet, non-screaming woman. Just isn't. And so I, I got frightened. I was quite alarmed. I jumped up and ran back there. And uh, there's Dana sitting in the chair, and she has tears streaming down her face. And there on the screen was an email from Emily at the adoption agency saying, uh, I can't believe I'm sending you this email, but something has happened with the family who is working to adopt Fabio and Madonna. They aren't able to complete that. And uh, would you? And Dana has tears streaming down her face. And I was standing there, she was sitting in the chair, and all she could do was look up and say, honey, I I guess we're supposed to do this, aren't we? And all I could say, yes, I absolutely think we are. I do not think anymore that it was just the coffee, right? (laughs) I do think it was the voice of God. I really think I heard from the Lord on that deal. And so, the Hopkins are adopting these kids from Ethiopia. Now, you should also know that adopting Fabio and Madonna has turned into adopting Fabio and Madonna and Alimahu, right? So Madonna's nine, and Fabio, her brother, is 13, and Alimahu is also 13. 
and uh, were adopting Ali Mahu because he had been promised, Fabio and he had been promised by the orphanage that they would be going wherever they went home, they would be going together. And we weren't about to disrupt that. Their best friends and their roommates at the orphanage. Ali Mahu's been in the orphanage for about 18 months, Fabio and Madonna for just about a year, a little more. So we are adopting two 13-year-old boys and a 9-year-old girl from Ethiopia. And I tell you all that because we need your prayer, <laughs> right? Duh. Uh, we need your prayer and we need your help, really, in this process. Just so you know, we've not ever been the parents of three kids from Africa who do not speak English and who will come home to us with deep emotional scarring and deep emotional damage. This is all new to us and they do not teach this stuff in school, any school. And so we need your help in every way that you can possibly imagine. But I also tell you this sort of long, drawn-out story because as we're talking together about learning how to hear the voice of God via his Holy Spirit in our lives, we're going to have some failures, aren't we? We're going to miss it. We're going to misunderstand and mishear and misinterpret. But at the same time we're going to have failures, we're also going to have successes. And the cool thing is that we're going to learn from both of those. We're going to learn from our successes and we're going to learn from our failures. And in the shack, Mac is incredibly concerned about learning from his failures. He doesn't even want to have any. He wants to hear perfectly from God's Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to get it wrong. He wants to nail it every single time. But we're not going to. And some people will argue, they'll say, well, learning by trial and error is fine when you're learning how to speak Spanish or some other foreign language, but it's a much more serious matter to learn by trial and error when you're telling people that God told you something, especially something like, these kids are going to be a part of your family, right? And I couldn't agree more. It is an incredibly serious matter to tell someone that God told you something. It is an incredibly serious matter. But you know what? We do it all the time. We do it all the time. We do it when we interpret a Bible verse for someone. We're saying to someone, this is what God says. We do it even when we read a Bible verse to someone. We're saying, this is what God says. We do it when we apply a Bible verse to our lives and then tell people how we applied that Bible verse to our lives. Because in all of those settings, we're telling people what God said and we might be wrong. We run an incredible risk of getting it wrong. Our interpretation, our application, our understanding might be miles off of God's intent for a particular verse from the Bible. And there's lots of times, those of you who have children, you know this, where our kids appear rather foolish at times, don't they? They they do things and they say things that we can only sum up by saying, That's just incredibly foolish. Or maybe another way to say it would be, that's just incredibly silly, right? And kids don't really care about that because kids are natural risk takers. They'll try anything whatsoever because they're not afraid to fail. They're never afraid to appear foolish. They're just entirely uninhibited. And we could learn from our children when it comes to hearing from the voice of God via his Holy Spirit. 
we could be a lot more uninhibited, couldn't we? But see, we're also very concerned about looking foolish. We never want to do it, do we? And when we step off of the cliff and we say, I think God told me, we run an incredible risk of looking foolish. I ran incredible risk when I told Dana, honey, the Lord whispered into my soul that these kids were going to be a part of our family. I talk about stepping off the edge. I ran an incredible risk of looking incredibly foolish. It's just the way it is when we're learning to hear God's voice. But we're never going to learn to hear God's voice through his Holy Spirit without trial and without error. And sometimes you're right. Those errors will make us look foolish. But that fear of looking foolish is all rooted in insecurity and in self-consciousness. And even at the end of the day, it's actually rooted in pride, which is all an incredible hindrance to learning to hear from God. We've got to put it down. We've got to put the fear down and the self-consciousness down And we've got to put the pride down and we've got to step out and step off and say, I think God is telling me. I think God is nudging me. I think God is asking me and just act on it. Just go and just do. And sometimes we're going to make a mistake. Sometimes we're going to hear God wrong. Sometimes we might look foolish. But in order for us to learn to hear the voice of God via his Holy Spirit, we've got to set all of that stuff aside. And we've got to be willing to appear like a child, foolish, maybe even silly, a whole bunch of times on our way to learning how to hear the voice of God. Then over on page 206, of the shack, this nugget that's what I consider to be one of the most profound pieces in the whole book, and it's very, very simple. It's a conversation between Mac and Papa, Mac and God, if you will. And Papa says to Mac these words, you never disappoint me. And just let those words wash over you, because God is saying the exact same thing to you today. You never disappoint me. And Mac, he struggles with this. What? You've never been disappointed in me? Mac was trying hard to digest this. Never, Papa stated emphatically. And because we live in a fallen world, in a world that's tainted and touched and affected deeply by this thing called sin, we live in a world in which we disappoint people regularly, don't we? And we are disappointed by people regularly, right? It's just the way life goes. Some of us have people in our lives who tell us regularly how much we've disappointed them. And lots of us carry that with us. And when we carry that with us, when we carry tapes that play over and over again, you disappoint, you disappoint, you disappoint, we then can often come to a place where we impose that very same thing on God. And we come to a misunderstanding about God that, well, if I disappoint all of these people who tell me I disappoint them, well, then I must be just one giant disappointment even to God. But there couldn't be anything further 
from the truth. You have never, no matter what you've done, no matter how low that you have sank, you have never been a disappointment to God. Not a single day, not a single time. Absolutely never. And it's actually quite unfair to God Because when we think that we've been a disappointment to God and that God is disappointed in us, it actually overlooks God's supreme sovereignty. It actually overlooks God's omniscience. It actually overlooks God's unconditional love and care for us because we're putting on God a characteristic of us, of humanity. And God is not us. He is not humanity. He is completely other. He has never been disappointed in you, not a single day. One of the most profound pieces in the whole book, in my view. And then over on page 222, let's dive into this. Papa asked Mac the question, could I have prevented what happened to Missy? The answer is yes. Mac looked up at Papa, his eyes asking the question that didn't need voicing. Papa continued, first, by not creating, all these questions would be moot. Or secondly, I could have chosen to actively interfere in her circumstance. The first was never a consideration. The latter was not an option for purposes that you cannot possibly understand now. Papa continues, at this point, all I have to offer you as an answer is my love and my goodness and my relationship with you. I did not purpose Missy's death, but that doesn't mean I can't use it for good. And if you were looking to proof text that little nugget from the shack, you might look at Romans 8.28, which is a verse that a whole bunch of us are very, very familiar with. Paul's writing in Romans 8.28, and the verse says this, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And because you're living life in the world, you know full well that every single day stuff happens to us that causes us to suffer. But see, it's in the midst of our suffering that one of the greatest supports we have is what's called the providence of God. You might write that down. The providence of God. What is the providence of God? Well, it's God's beneficial rule over all of the events of life. The providence of of God. Romans 8:28 is one of the great biblical descriptions and pillars of this concept of God's providence. Now it's important to know about Romans 8:28 that those two words works together is probably not at all the best rendering of the original language that Paul would have written in. A likely better translation would be to say it like this. We know that all things work toward the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a subtle yet dramatic difference. And lots of times we read that verse and we go, uh, who does that apply to? Who gets to experience Romans 8, 28? Well, it's Christ followers. It's people who have yielded their lives to God. It's people who, in Paul's words, in the verse, it's people who love God. God's people get to experience the promise of Romans 8, 28. This isn't just an anyone on planet earth verse. This is for people who follow Jesus. And Christ followers for many generations have found incredible comfort in the promise of Romans 8, 28, and rightfully so. 
It's one of God's greatest promises to his people that we find anywhere in the text. But it's also one of the most misunderstood and misapplied and mishandled texts in the Bible. And in order to get to what exactly Romans 8.28 really means, I think we got to air out. It's important that we air out a couple of very common misconceptions about the meaning of this verse. First, it's this one. Romans 8.28 does not seem to be promising that all things work together for good. You might have at some point in your life heard Romans 8.28 treated this way, something along the lines of, now look, God does not promise to bring us good in every situation, but instead, just like a cook combines ingredients to make a tasty dish of food, so too does God mix together the circumstances of life, the good circumstances and the bad circumstances in such a way that ultimately the dish that gets cooked is good, right? Lots of us think about Romans 8.28 that way. But that's not actually what's in view in Romans 8.28. Because see, there's way too much ambiguity to say with any certainty that the work together and the all things are pointed back in toward each other. Paul could have just as easily been meaning that all things work together with the Holy Spirit or all things work together with God or that all things work together with all believers to produce the end goal of good first misconception. The second, and it's probably more common uh, misunderstanding of Romans 8.28, probably much more serious too. We may at some point in our lives have heard someone, or maybe we've even done it ourselves, uh, done what I like to call Romans 8.28 difficult things in people's lives away. We Romans 8, 28, difficult things away. It's almost like we pick up the rug and we sweep the difficult thing under the rug and the broom we use to sweep the difficult thing under the rug is Romans 8, 28. We just Romans 8, 28, it away. Maybe it went something like this. We say to our friend who just lost their job, yes, you may have lost your job, but you can be certain because of God's promise in Romans 8, 28 that you're gonna get an even better job. Because why? Well, all things are working together for good. Just look at Romans 8.28, right? Maybe somebody has said that to you. Maybe you've said it to someone. Maybe it went like this. Don't be at all upset because your fiancé broke off your engagement. Just so you know, that's probably God's way of making sure that you do not get permanently hooked up with that kind of a loser. God certainly has an even better marriage partner for you. Romans 8.28 promises, and we just lift up the rug, and with Romans 8.28, just sweep the hard thing right under the rug. Ah, there, we've dealt with it. It's all working together for good. But see, what we so often do is we turn the good that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.28 into a in very, very narrow and primarily materialistic and self-centered view of what's good, don't we? You should know that I've struggled incredibly with Romans 8.28 in the past six weeks or so. On December 17th, we found out that Bailey, who is our oldest daughter, mm, technically Madonna is our oldest daughter, but she's still in Ethiopia, right? But uh, our oldest daughter that lives at home is still Bailey. Uh, we found out that she is a type 1 diabetic. December 17th, like, Merry Christmas. Here we go. 
That means that her body, for some reason, doesn't make insulin anymore. The doctors tell us that it was likely a virus of some kind that knocked her pancreas offline. And so her pancreas is broken. It's very likely, barring a miracle of God, that isn't ever going to work again. That means that life is different for us now. We check her blood sugar about a dozen times a day and all through the night. We give her four lovely shots of insulin every day, and we count carbs now. Like, we count carbs in our sleep, even. Like, okay, how much is that? It's like everything is a carb. How much sugar is in that? Life just got immensely more complicated with this diagnosis. And so I think about Romans 8.28, and I've had some sort of stern conversations with the Lord. And I'm going, all right, Romans 8.28, all things work together for good. And I'm going, Lord, how in the world is this going to work out for any good? You just... Tell me that, please. I, I mean no disrespect, but really, I don't see or taste or smell any good in this. Basically, Bailey, for the rest of her life, she's six now, for the rest of her life, barring God's miraculous healing, she will live with this life-threatening disease for the rest of her life. How is that any good? Just shine a little light, would you, please? But the Lord has been working me on my definition of good and our definition of good. We must, we must define good in God's terms, not our terms. God's spiritual terms, not our feel good, look good, smell good terms. Because see, at the end of the day, for God, the ultimate good is something called his glory. What is God's glory? Well, it's the fullness of the majesty of God that is revealed in the world and is made known to humanity. That's the glory of God. The fullness of the majesty of God revealed in the world and made known to humanity. That's how God defines good. And God is completely and entirely glorified when we who follow him live as Christ lived and attain what he has in mind for us, not necessarily what we have in mind for us. You know very well that God uses suffering and difficulty to build his character more and more in us. It is all over the Bible how he does that. Which means that for us, Romans 8.28 is God's promise, not that every difficult experience will lead to something that feels good or tastes good or smells good in this life, in the way that we most often think of good, but that the good that God has in mind might involve our eternity. It might have nothing to do with this life right here, right now, but probably, very likely, has everything to do with our eternity at the end of this life. When this life is over and gone, the reality is that God might very well take us out of a secure, well-paying job in order to shake us out of a materialistic lifestyle that does not honor God's priorities. And the truth is, we might never have as good a job again for the rest of our lives. That's the reality. God may indeed want to set us free from an engagement to be married because he wants to use us in a ministry that would be difficult or perhaps even impossible for a married person. 
for the Hopkins family, for Bailey in particular, this allowance by God of diabetes is likely for some purpose that we cannot even conceive at this moment. And we might not ever conceive of it until this life is over, until eternity. But it is by our sharing in Christ's sufferings that we are eventually able to share in his glory the fullness of the majesty of God revealed in the world and made known to humanity. And there's a couple of things that Romans 8.28 doesn't mean, but it's such a fantastic verse, we can't leave it on the negative side. What does Romans 8.28 mean? Here's what it is. When we boil Romans 8.28 down, nothing, the promise of God, is that nothing will touch our lives that is not under the control and the direction of our loving Heavenly Father, the God of Heaven who is incredibly fond of every one of us and every person on planet Earth, everything we do and everything we say, everything that people do to us and say about us, every experience that we ever have are all being sovereignly used by God for us our eventual good. We will not always understand how the things that we are experiencing are working toward that good. We will not always enjoy them. Just ask Bailey how much she enjoys those four lovely shots we give her every day or how much Mac in the shack enjoyed the loss of his precious daughter, Missy. But we can bank on the fact that nothing comes into our lives that God does not allow and use for his beneficent purposes, his purposes. Now the shack ends in a fantastic place. And if you haven't read it, you have to read it. It ends in this incredible place of forgiveness. But unfortunately, I do not have time to treat the end of the shack, okay? Uh, we're going to worship around communion and so on, and I want us to be able to spend adequate time there. So, here's what that means for all of us as a community. You have homework. You have homework. And I'm going to invite and I'm going to challenge you to please get around the forgiveness stuff at the end of the shack. Make some space this week. And would you mirror the work of forgiveness that Mac does with God down the stretch of the shack. And I'm going to tell you where this is going to land for most all of us in this room. For most of us, this is going to land, this forgiveness piece is going to land in the place of us needing this. And this is the imagery that uh, Young uses in the shack. That for most of us, we're need, going to need to remove our hands from around the necks of the people in our lives who have hurt us and who have offended us and who have wounded us and who have caused us pain. We're going to have to remove our hands from around their necks. Now, I'm not saying that you're literally strangling people. It's a spiritual imagery. It's a figurative thing. Our hands around people's necks because we are out for revenge because of the damage that they have caused us. And in a very spiritual, real spiritual sense, we have our hands around their necks because we're out for revenge. And I need to leave it with you and I need to leave it with the Lord to 
together walk through that process of letting go and putting down and getting rid of your right to get even with the people in your life who have caused you pain and who have offended you and who have caused you great damage. You must let it go. And the end section of the shack does the best job of anything I've ever read at walking us through that process. Do not delay this, please. Do not put it off. Get it done. The truth is that you will never Never be the person that God intends you to be if you're harboring unforgiveness, if you're harboring bitterness, or if you are somehow, even in just a tiny corner of your heart, reserving the right to get even with someone for the damage that they have caused you. You will spend all of your days walking with a significant spiritual limp if you don't clean it up and if you don't deal with it. So press into it. It'll be the hardest work you ever do. It will be the best work you ever do. So why don't you take your stuff and set it aside and let's go to prayer. Just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would and just tell God what you're thinking about. Tell God what's on your heart and your mind. And I'm going to ask you to please do me the service, if you would, of just keeping your heads bowed and continuing in a posture of prayer for the rest of our time. Now, I don't know what you've understood or misunderstood about God in the past. But the truth that I hope today lands with an incredible thud in all of our hearts and in all of our lives is this truth that you have never been a disappointment to God. Not a single time has he ever been disappointed in you. God leads out with you with his fondness every single day, every single time. And God is so incredibly fond of you and every person on planet earth that he sent his one and only son to live and to die so that you could live in a relationship with him. He invites you and every person on planet earth to receive the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And when you receive that gift of Jesus Christ, you will not ever be the same. You are forgiven and you are adopted and you are privileged to spend eternity with God starting right here, right now. It isn't just a someday heaven thing. It's a right here, right now thing. And maybe you're here today in the truth that God loves you that much. The truth that God sent his one and only son to die for you. Maybe that truth came home to roost for the first time and you want to receive that gift. If that's you, you can move into a relationship with God by praying along with me, a prayer that goes something like this. God, thank you so much 
for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know that I've sinned in ways that I shouldn't have. But today, God, I realize that you are perfect and that you are holy and that my sin has separated me from you. This isn't anything you did, God. This is a me thing. I did this. But God, with everything in me, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to please forgive me and please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to be my friend. And God, I need you to change me. And God, I really need you to clean my life up. And if you prayed with me just then to give your life to Jesus Christ, I want you to know that that's the biggest decision of your whole life. Nothing matters more and nothing carries more weight. There's not a bigger deal ever. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they made that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me. Nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm the only person looking around the room. If you prayed with me just then, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and say, yes, I stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Way to go. Way to go, and you too, and you too, and you too. Right now, God is changing all of you. Just make sure I catch your eye and see you, please. I don't wanna miss anybody. Is there anyone else? I don't wanna miss you. Yeah, right there. Way to go, God's changing you right now. You're being adopted, and then you too, right there. God's changing you and he's making you new. Yeah, right there. God's changing you right now. Way to go. God, we're overwhelmed by the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we're overwhelmed that by your Holy Spirit, you speak into our lives and we, we want to hear you. And we want to step out and we want to be uninhibited when it comes to following your nudges and your promptings and when it comes to hearing your voice, God. So would you help us do that, please? Help us be willing to look foolish for you. Help us be willing to just step off and follow your prompting, God. And then, God, would you please help us be people who think about the difficulty and the hardship in our lives through your eyes, to think about it like you think about it. It doesn't necessarily make it easier, God, but to have your perspective helps us understand and see that there's a bigger purpose, and it's your purpose, which is, at the end of the day, what matters most, your purpose, your glory, your fame your bigness in the world, God. And your bigness matters to us. And so may we reflect you to the world through the good and through the bad, Father. Use us for your glory, please. We love you and we worship you and we are immensely privileged to call ourselves your children. We pray all of this in the precious name of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And the church said,